as I was saying, when the title of the book is How to Drag a Body, well, firstly, you know I had to get it. But also, you know, there's a lot more to that story. And Judith Matloff, who wrote it, joins us. Thanks, Judith. I appreciate you joining us. Great to be here. The book is terrific. And I got to tell you, the opening of it was just spellbinding to me, uh, of you in Angola. And I have to say, only a journalist would think after that, I got to write a book. The rest of us would be looking at career changes. So, <laughs> <laughs> the problem with journalism—it's like malaria. Once it's in your blood, it's you're just—it's—it's it's part of you. <laughs> you're, you're done, right? And you know, as I'm reading it, and of course I'm reading it this year because it just came out, and I'm putting that in context with what's going on in America these days, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, back in 1992, 91, that was amazing in Angola, but now it's not, okay, no landmines, hopefully not many pipelines, et cetera, but it's not that different. As you watch what's going on in the streets of the U.S., does this remind you of incidents you've covered around the world? Um, civil unrest, yes. Um, and it's it's very worrying because, you know, we believed in an American exceptionalism all these years, and suddenly we're seeing the fraying of uh, what we believe to be um, a, a sort of <laughs> an example to the rest of the world. It's, it's very, very worrying um, what is happening at the moment. And I, I really fear for what's going to happen when the, you know, after the elections. Um, so do I. It's, it's a very disturbing time. And I think that's why it's so important for people to think about how they can go about their lives in the safest way possible and come up with plans so that they can look at the current situation with as much rationality and calm as they can. When did you start to actually, I know you were thinking of writing the book in a, back as far back as Angola, but when did you start putting pen to paper to start writing it? Yeah, actually, the idea of writing it um, happened really just a couple of years ago. I published my last book in 2000, what was it, uh, 2018. And when I was finished, when I finished it, I was thinking, what's my next project? Because that's what authors do. You're always thinking about your next book. And I was chatting with a friend of mine, and she said, you do all this safety training for people who go into dangerous situations. And so many people are craving information so that they can live their lives in a less anxious way. Why don't you just put all your knowledge and what you do in teaching into a book and uh, share it with people? So it, it, And then it was a really quick turnaround, because since I teach this safety training to people in workshops through my training consultancy and also at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I had all my lectures. I had all my notes. I had all the information already compiled. It was just a matter of putting it down to paper. So it was the quickest book I've ever written. It was basically six months, and it was done. It's interesting because timing is everything, of course, in life. And uh, when you started a couple of years ago, you couldn't possibly have envisioned uh, the level of fear people are feeling now and why this might become such a runaway bestseller, which I think it will. Uh, Of course, the title is great. But once you get past How to Drag a Body, and I'm sure it was probably (laughs) someone at the uh, at the publishing house who thought, oh, this is the hit title. But this is actually a very useful book. (laughs) Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it, it actually wasn't my first. I had a very boring title, something like prepped, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, how to prepare for, you know, yeah. adversity. And they were like, no, no, we need something catchy. No, you're absolutely right. I didn't anticipate um, the pandemic 
I didn't anticipate uh, the violence that we're seeing at the moment and the level of anxiety and trauma that people are experiencing. But I'm glad I did write the book when I did because it was all ready for this moment. It really is. And uh, there, there are so many parts of it. And again, when you think about some of the events, you normally do think about places you can't find on a map, but that might turn out to be Portland. So uh, this, this <laughs> you know, could be in your neighborhood uh, any day. And you're right, not only the election, and w- none of us have any reason to believe it will be decided on November 3rd. And now with the uh, ramp up in rhetoric after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, uh, you know, we're, we're not even a week since then. And all already the uh, word a fever pitch so it, it seems to be like being prepared is absolutely the way to go right and the theme of the book and the message that i want to signal to people is that if you think about what makes you most anxious your worst case scenario it could be your elderly parents falling sick from covid it could be you go shopping and suddenly you're in the middle of some violence It could be whatever, you know, it could be a wildfire, it could be a hurricane, whatever your worst fear is, analyze whether it really is likely to happen. Is this just an irrational fear? Is it something that might happen? And if you think it might happen, try to think about how you can mitigate it, how you can prevent it, and how you can cope with it. And once you come up with a plan, you've already rehearsed it in your mind, and you've already thought about what kind of security and safety precautions you should be taking. So once you have a plan, you actually feel calmer because you have, you have a, you know, actually steps that you can embrace and follow. And, um, and you've thought through what you will do in case it happens. Like, let's say, for instance, you live like I do in a, in a hurricane zone. So think, you know, already pack your emergency bag just in case you have to evacuate and find out now where you would evacuate to, because it could be different from previous years due to COVID. And, um, and also, you know, put in, in that bed that you packed, put all the essential documents, you know, copies of documents and whatnot, you know, extra supplies for COVID PPE, you know, whatever. So just have all that stuff ready. And once it's ready, if a hurricane did happen, you won't panic because you've already thought it through and you'll know what you should do, be doing. Yeah, that is a that is a truly great suggestion because a lot of the fear comes from uh, uh, from the unknown, the unexpected, and then out of the blue. And now, what do I do? How to drag a body and other safety tips you hope to never need, whether it's protest bombs and shooters. Oh yeah, that's a chapter. Or dodge the hack, electronic security, and everything in between. It's in there. Judith Matloff is my guest. In addition to being a writer, she is also a professor teaching journalism. So I got a few questions along those lines as well. But if you have any questions. I want you to join us, 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. So we are talking to Judith Matloff, how to drag a body and other safety tips you hope to never need. And I should mention, by the way, that I was attracted to the sinister title, but it turns out that it's not sinister at all. It's what to do on emergency uh, first aid. I had visions of all sorts of other things, uh, Judith. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want you to be dragging corpses. Right, no. right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, especially if they were at your hand, you know. Uh, sp- speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of which, under emergency first aid, I discovered, uh, I-, I hope to never use this, but that with severed parts, don't put them on ice. So that. Oh, no, no, they're not oysters. 
You, they are not oysters. Do not put them on ice. <laughs> and you know, that's so interesting because it would be almost everybody's probably first instinct, well, let's keep it chilled. But I guess you can't freeze it, which makes sense because, you know, freezer burn and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, the best thing is, like, if you chop off your finger or part oh. of it, uh, put it in a Ziploc bag, uh, keep it in a moist, uh, cool place and then obviously rush to the hospital so they can sew it back on but yeah the, the if you put it on ice the tissue will die so you definitely yeah. don't want to do yeah, that so this is this is something to definitely hopefully never use but uh, but keep in mind <laughs> i i thought it was interesting that you opted for laser surgery on your eyes which which makes sense like you i i've never seen my feet at the bottom of the shower I, i've never seen anything while i'm in the pool <laughs> so uh so it, it does make a lot of sense and, you know, some people would find that obst- uh, really extreme. But on the other hand, you're in the middle of nowhere and suddenly lose your glasses. You're plumb dead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, or, you know, you just get, you know, a lot of dust in your eye and then you get an eye infection. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't, you know, with the type of work I do. But, you know, think about it. The, um, the U.S. military, the Army, uh, encourages... Um, Soldiers to, who have myopia to, myopia to get the operation for that very reason, because it frees you, it liberates you. And, you know, with all the amount of money that I was spending on Bosch and Loam saline solution and <laughs> contact lens solution, it probably, you know, in the long run, I probably saved thousands of dollars by just getting this simple surgery. But I realize it's not for everybody. Right, right. And depending upon your vision problems, it might not even be the answer, but it, it's probably worth looking into anyway. Years and years ago, and I'm going back to being a child, I remember that, uh, and this is the dark ages, truly, that uh, what we had was people who were going to some very remote places, in some cases, would have their appendix removed before they went. And uh, Yes, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so uh, it, it was actually a thing. You know, when I say that now, people look at me like, yeah, right. But, uh, but you know, this, this doesn't matter until you're in a place you can't pronounce and you have a medical problem. It, uh, it, it yeah. occurs. So I think uh, I think it's just uh, just a wonderful book all the way around with uh, with a lot of sage advice. Uh, some things are somewhat obvious, such as uh, you know if you're in a theater, yes, try to sit near the exit. But there's <laughs> <laughs> makes all the sense in the world. But there's a number of things that that aren't obvious. Now along those lines, when we're going back to Angola here in 1992, and we've got, we've got a despot who's who's running for election, and I I had to laugh out loud. When you said no one figured on what would happen if he didn't win, and of course, yeah, yeah. why? Yeah, why not? like everybody was so desperate. Everybody was so desperate for peace because you have to realize um, Angola was a proxy war between the Soviet Union and the United States during, um, you know, during the Cold War. So they finally brokered a peace that was overseen by the UN. Everybody was so desperate for this war to be over that nobody really thought. You know, they they didn't want to go to the worst case scenario, which is what the book is about. You know, thinking right. about the worst case scenario, and the worst case scenario should have been obvious, as you point out, but nobody you know wanted to go there. And it happened. You know, this guy lost the election, and he you know said to all his troops, "Let's go back to war." That was that. Right, yes. Savimbi. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I'd never even heard of the guy, but with your graphic dis- you know, description of him, it occurred to me like it should have been a fallback position of what this nut is going to do. I, I know hindsight's twenty <laughs> twenty, but uh, the, the, uh, thank God the guy was shot in the legs because he tried to uh, threaten to murder you. 
So clearly, oh yeah, that was his number two who yeah. got shot in the leg. Right. Uh, Savimbi was sitting in his villa, you know, hundreds of miles right. away, you know, drinking whiskey, whatever, you know, well, right. you know, killing his, you know, shooting his his uh, opponents or raping their wives. You yeah, know? Right. right. But yeah, yeah, no, his his number two threatened me, and yeah, he got shot in the legs. Yeah, no, it was it was a very awkward time to be there because the United States didn't have diplomatic relations. So technically, my government couldn't could not evacuate me. And uh, when the war started again, you know, I was in my hotel room, and you know, suddenly there was a big boom, like a car bomb went outside, you know, went off outside. And then I'd be walking around the street, and there'd be all the shooting and snipers, and you know, whatever. And of course, I didn't know anything about how to cover war because, you know, when you're a journalist back in the 1990s, they just say. You know, well, get on the first plane and uh, good luck. You know, hope you come back with all the equipment and you don't lose any of it. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, no, it was a little bit hairy, but I got out of there in the end. You know, it all worked out, and here I am. Yeah, in no, New York, <laughs> you did. But it was, uh, it was, it was quite touch and go. That's why I say it was, it was literally spellbinding to me, especially when you got to the part of here are the explosions, and being a journalist, you run toward them. You know, the rest of us, well, <laughs> I won't say would be running for the border because they had landmines on all the borders, but it. It's, uh, it's just a fascinating read, How to Drag a Body and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need. And I've got a link on Raleigh.net, R-O-L-L-Y-E dot N-E-T, so you can pick up a copy for yourself. I think you're going to like it. I've got plenty more to ask Judith, but I bet you've got a couple questions. 888-876-5593 is 8888-RALEIGH on WGN Radio. We are talking with Judith Matloff, How to Drag a Body and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need. It is a wonderfully whimsical title, but it is truly an essential book. And Judith, in addition to writing, teaches crisis reporting at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. And interesting, when I saw that, uh, I I got a real question, somewhat unrelated to the book, but... You know, a lot of people are striving, who are journalists, to report unbiased news. And, of course, we know the examples of people who were intentionally biased and and outfits that are intentionally biased. But when we get to things that are, quote-unquote, unbiased, what starts to happen in my mind is that a reporter's worldview absolutely colors the way they see a story. And while they might try to be unbiased, how they perceive life and everything else just unintentionally, but bias is a story. Now, when you're teaching, how do you teach students to overcome that? And is it possible? You look at facts. And unfortunately, in America at the moment, a lot of news organizations, uh, well, not a lot, but certain news organizations, um, do not rely on facts. They rely on opinions. But if you go for hard data and hard facts, that is what steers you towards more impartial impartial reporting, that you're simply reporting uh, figures, statistics, uh, science. Science is very important because it is factual. It's not opinion. So that's what we strive towards. Okay, I'm glad you brought some of that up. Let's let's talk facts for a moment here, and especially with regard to figures. Uh, you'll mm. you'll, for instance, hear the figures say from the CDC on on COVID nineteen. Uh, what you won't hear is you won't hear, for instance, on the death figures, the percentage of people with underlying medical conditions. Uh, you won't hear. You do, You actually do. You actually do. 
not you actually do not it routinely. Yeah. No, what I'm saying is when you yeah, turn, no, no. Well, when, when you well, turn on the um, evening when you turn on the evening news, and again, we're not talking about the MSNBCs or the Foxes. I'm not going to either side of yeah. that. But you know, you're, you're talking about say your CBS or your CNN, I, I who don't supposedly have an agenda. All right, you will hear that, and I hear this every day that Johns Hopkins release, but you'll never hear a disclaimer about putting those quote unquote facts into context that in fact tells you what they mean. I, I think you raise a very important point, but I would differ factually with the word never. Um, if you, for instance, look at the New York Times reporting and the Washington Post reporting, and remember, newspaper reporting tends to be more nuanced than television. I think television where people rely on sound bites and they have, um, yeah, seven it's seconds. more sensationalistic sure. Sure. and it's more visual, you'll get less nuanced news. And that's one reason why I I teach print journalism and I believe in it because you can go more into depth with that context. So I would urge people to turn to newspapers rather than television as their main source of information because there's more space and opportunity to put in that perspective. But even with newspapers, as I say, some of them, it depends what you're reading, uh, will will. Not, I don't think it's intentional, but it'll certainly leave out what I would consider to be the salient facts, uh, the way it's presented. And that's why I say, that's why I'm asking the question, because it comes down to me. I don't think, I mean, I know the conspiratorialists want to tell you that, you know, it's all by design. I don't think so. I think most of these people are, are sincerely trying to report it, you know, as it is. But, of course, what they're doing is reporting it as they see it. And so it doesn't necessarily bring out the same points that somebody with another worldview would be going for on the same set of facts, again, not opinions. But, you know, if you look at the three main newspapers of America, the, the Wall Street Journal, which is fairly right wing, the New York Times and Washington Post, which are more centrist. The reporting is almost identical. Well, see, the opinion pages, pages are different, but they report the same stories in the same way. Right. I they don't, do. I don't, they do. And, and I, that's why I think yeah, okay. that's one reason why we have journalism schools, because people really study it in depth. I think it's very easy to make a generalization um, and to say they never do or they generally do. But when you actually sit and study it, as we do, you actually find that this incredible similarity between and again, the Wall Street Journal is 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 not at all a liberal newspaper, but the reporting of major stories and the facts are near identical to what you would see in the Washington Post or the New York Times. It's the editorial pages at the back of the newspaper where people express opinions that show interpretation of facts, but the actual news reporting is the same. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at age, at certain age of cancer. It's all facts. Well, obviously that then in then in the editorial pages, there will be analysis with people's points of view of what her place was in history and what her contribution was and what her death means for uh, the electoral process. That goes on the editorial page. But the actual facts, an illustrious Supreme Court justice died. This is what her, her life was like. Those facts will be the same no matter what. Well, it's interesting. I would, by the way, I would never call the New York Times or the Washington Post centrist. Uh, but, but that's just, see, that's my worldview. Yeah. I would say that they were so far left, I couldn't read them. And, uh, you know, I would also not consider the Wall Street Journal to be terribly right. But I understand, I understand your point. It's just that what I see is not necessarily so much of skewed facts. And I wanted to mention that on the editorial page, fine, but I'm not, I'm not accusing somebody of intentional bias, but 
by very often the part of the story they're not reporting that isn't included in the story, which would color what are normally black and white facts, are just missing. And I was curious when you're teaching that if that's even brought up in a class about how to not allow your worldview to, in fact, color your story uh, unwittingly. Yeah. Yeah, no, we definitely do. I mean, we teach people to constantly double check themselves when they're reporting, you know, what is, and, and to check their views against other people. But I want to raise a point. You said the New York Times is so far left that you wouldn't read it. So then how do you know what the reporting no, is no, no, if you're that, not reading that, it? No, that I, that I wouldn't choose to read. I have read Oh, that you wouldn't choose. Yeah, I would, I would never subscribe to it. But my way of thinking when I used to have to u- read everything regularly was that mm-hmm. everybody knows they should question the National Enquirer for the obvious reasons. Or back then, yes. we, used to say, <laughs> or back then we used to say the Weekly World News, which was you know, really off the charts wonderfully. You knew what that was. But my, my frustration was I felt that people should be questioning the New York Times and others supposedly, uh, uh, you know, paragons of journalism to the same extent. And yet people yeah. just accepted it on fact. And uh, sadly, today, we can have this discussion all we want. And most people aren't reading period. So that's another issue. And you're 100% right in terms of television is basically getting it on the seven second soundbite. And it seems that that is only getting worse as time goes on. When you read uh, that the average younger person today, say under 30, listens to less than 20 seconds of their favorite song on a stream, you see what the attention span is. And that's going to be interesting to see how that that colors uh, even what we're seeing today. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great concern. I mean, I really share your concern there. And, um, you know, one thing that I, I think is very, very good is radio, because you can have these conversations and discussion. And I, I think radio is a very, very powerful way to raise these issues um, and discuss them, in, because, there, because it actually is a conversation. Yeah. And um, it's, it's such a, you know, what you're doing and what other podcasters and, and radio um, people on radio are doing is, is fantastic because you're nurturing a discussion and it's through a conversation that people can begin to grapple with these ideas and, and think about them and be provoked to think about them. You're right, right, and hopefully form their own opinions of it rather than uh, mm-hmm. have it spoon-fed to them. But how to drag a body and other safety tips you hope you never need. And I think that uh, the idea of preparation, which you pointed out early in the book and early on in this discussion, probably is is king as far as that goes in terms of the single most important thing you can do to protect yourself. But we'll move on from there and find out what else can you do maybe that you're not thinking about. No, you're not going to have your appendix taken out most likely, and you're not going have your teeth pulled. But uh, there are some things that perhaps uh, aren't nearly as draconian that maybe aren't top of mind to you that might just save you. Got any questions? 888-876-5593. It's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. So we're talking to Judith Matloff, how to drag a body and other safety tips you hope to never need. In addition to being a copious writer and a college professor, uh, she also is giving seminars, courses, and advice on what to do to protect yourself in all uh, all arenas actually and i gotta ask because now of course there's probably standing room only if they were standing but certainly more activity in what it is the wisdom you have to impart but other than say being afraid of rape or being killed 
which are obvious problems to ruin your day. What are the big fears that people are coming to you with now saying, what do I do in this instance? Um, the civil unrest, people are wondering if they want to peacefully protest how they can protect themselves from tear gas and, um, or, you know, somebody running a car into them. Oh, um, you know, where do they stand in a, in a crowd? What sort of um, gear, be it a helmet or goggles, they should wear to protect themselves if they're going out to peacefully protest and then, you know, all mayhem breaks out. People are very worried about that. Um, the biggest thing that people are approaching me about is emotional resilience. There's so much anxiety and angst right now due to COVID, the losses of jobs, the losses of loved ones, um, just, you know, this endless restrictions of life that put so much pressure on people. And that's created a lot of, um, you know, really despair for so many people and, and anxiety about how long will this go on for. And then there's, there's the anxiety about the elections and, you know, where we're heading right now. And so a lot of what... Um, I would say the vast majority of the trainings that I'm doing with people now is on emotional resilience, um, something that you need to know about when you're in a war zone, which is a long-haul, uncertain situation, which, doesn't, which involves a lot of tension and, again, you know, polarization and, and, um, and conflict and doesn't have an end in sight. So a lot of it is talking about how you build your social networks, so that you can get the support from the people you need and how you can take each day at a time so that you don't project too much in the future and you can just get through your activities and be as productive and as, um, and as calm as you possibly can. I mean, it's been a really, really tough year for people since, what is it, since February when the pandemic began. It's, you know, it's been a really tough time for people. Well, and with, uh, with no end in sight and with, with no clear information on precisely what's going on, because it's an unfolding story, great for journalists, but maybe not someone who, uh, who has a level of fear that's ramping up. Uh, of course, it's always been said over the eons that, that fear is the, the greatest political weapon, that if you can whip people up into a fear frenzy, you got them. And uh, all sides of the aisle are, are trying to do that right now, so I can, I can see the result. But so, so let's say uh, someone comes to you and they're saying, oh, my God, life is over because Trump is going to win or because Trump is not going to win. I don't care which side. But what advice do you give them? Well, my advice would be let's take a deep breath, first of all. <laughs> let's think about what's working for you. Um, what are you most scared of? Is that your worst-case scenario? And what's the worst that can happen? Is that likely to happen? And then in the meanwhile, you've got to get yourself through the day. You've got to get yourself through the week. So what makes you feel strong? What makes you feel connected to people who you love, who make you feel good? What can you do to make yourself more emotionally resilient? And, you know, what's very important is that we all need um, to eat well right now. We need to take really good physical care of ourselves because if you're really worn out and you're not sleeping well and you're not eating well, you're more likely to get very emotionally stressed out. So, you know, get yourself on a sleep schedule. Get yourself on as good a routine you can if you're working at home. Um, again, really connect with people, even if it's only via Zoom, as we've been doing for many months. You know, you really need to connect with those people, your people. Um, and, you know, just get exercise. Exercise is absolutely critical. It's a really good way to work off the stress and the anxiety. 
And try to be good to yourself. Maybe eke out an hour a day of something that really makes you feel good. Maybe it's watching movies. For me, it's funny videos. I mean, that's just like mm-hmm. the best thing for me, watching, you know, t- funny TV series. But, you know, maybe it's reading. Maybe it's playing with your kids and your dog. But what it, whatever it is, just try to anchor yourself at least an hour a day. And also, I would just suggest to everybody, shut off the news at dinner time. Oh, yeah. Um, you need to sleep well. It, it's, you know, I, I, I think, you know, even for those of us that are involved in the news business, it, it, it creates more anxiety if you're really immersed in it minute by minute. So just shut off at a certain point and just chill for the evening. No, all all great advice, and uh, I concur a hundred percent on the physicality. Uh, because for especially for people who are afraid they're going to come down with COVID nineteen, your best defense is to be in a healthy situation. Now, now I joke, of course, there was a run on toilet paper because we all knew we'd be at home eating our own cooking. But even so, I think that uh, there are so many things that we can do at home, including exercise. And as far as uh, you talking to people about the worst that can happen, to me, that's always been the golden question. I ask people, what's the worst that could happen? And in Invariably, it isn't as bad as they're fearing. Uh, Judith, it's just a great book, How to Drag a Body and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need. Judith Matloff, thank you for writing it, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you, and everybody stay safe.